This podcast is brought to you by the Baton Rouge Area Foundation, your community foundation, which is focused on one simple goal, to help philanthropists pursue their causes for bettering the lives of people in Louisiana. Welcome to the pod. I'm your host, Chris Meyer, and today we invited Kathleen Ritchie, the executive director of the Louisiana CASA, the court-appointed special advocates. Kathleen is also the recipient of the 2022 John W. Barton Sr. Excellence in Nonprofit Management Award by the Baton Rouge Area Foundation. Kathleen has been instrumental in establishing both the Capital Area CASA and the statewide organization while serving as a judge in the East Baton Rouge Juvenile Court for over 24 years. To date, the organization in Baton Rouge has served over 3,500 children, but annually statewide, they serve just as many. Keep listening to learn more about the work of Louisiana CASA. Kathleen, welcome. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to talk about CASA at any time. Um, CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. It's actually a national movement that began in the late 70s um, in Seattle, Washington, by a judge named David Sukup, and um, juvenile judges make significant decisions that impact not only a child and their immediate family, but impact the family for generations. So um, Judge Sukup was concerned that he might not have all the information he needed to make really good decisions and asked some ladies at his church if they could help him and set up an organizational meeting. He says he expected about six, seven people, and the courtroom was overflowing. So it became clear that this was a good public-private partnership, that people wanted to help the children in their communities. It quickly became a national movement, um, in large part because the Office of Juvenile Justice in the Department of Justice identified it as a promising program and funded it. So all over the country, CASA programs, or what were what started out as a CASA program, some of them kind of deviated from the program model, um, cropped up all over the country. In Louisiana, the first CASA program was in 1984 in New Orleans. When I was elected to the juvenile bench, one of the things that I had said I wanted to do was start a CASA program in Baton Rouge because we were the only community at that time the same size as Baton Rouge without a CASA program. Oh, wow. So that was one of the re- one of my goals was to establish a CASA program, and it and it actually was established in '91, late '91, but it wasn't until '92 that it really took hold. And the same time frame, the local programs all over the country realized there was a need to establish a national organization. So National CASA was created, I believe, in 1982, and by 2002 had decided that they would um, impose certain standards so that there could be some uniformity across the country. And so National CASA has grown in um, capacity and in uh, service annually. The Across the country, almost 300,000 children are served annually. That's incredible. Now, let, let's back up for a moment about your uh, engagement in this. So, first of all, what, what made you even run, want to run to become a, a juvenile judge? Well, I had always said I would never run for office. It wasn't anything I was Famous interested last in. Famous last words. Yeah. Um, when I finished law school, I clerked for the 19th JDC for Judge Dan LeBlanc. And then I opened a private practice. Um, one of the 
factors of opening a private practice is business is slow initially. So I took what was billed as a part-time job with the public defender's office, and I was the first public defender in juvenile court. The judges at the time were exercising the family court judges were exercising juvenile jurisdiction. Each of them went to the family court center one day a week and had court. And so I was hired as the part-time juvenile defender. I went to court Monday, Wednesday, and Friday out at Ryan Airport and defended kids who were charged with crimes. And then on Tuesdays, I did non-support, criminal non-support downtown. So four out of five days a week is not really part-time, but I loved it, and I did not know that it would be something that I would enjoy so much. Um, and so over the years, I moved from juvenile court to district court as a public defender, and at some point I just realized that there was so much um, work to do that, mm -hmm. that I was drawn to in the juvenile arena. So when the court, when the legislature created a court that was a, uh, an exclusively juris juvenile jurisdiction court, um, I ran and surprised everybody, including me, by winning. <laughs> now, at, at the time, there was – how many judges were there for, for juvenile court at, at the time? None. I was the first. You were the first. And so when – over what period of time was it recognized that, that one was, was maybe not enough to really meet the needs of, of families and, and juveniles? Well, I recognized it after about two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um it took four years for there to be a second juvenile court seat created for um, East Baton Rouge Parish Juvenile Court. So for four years, it was just me. And we started court at 9, and sometimes I didn't finish until after midnight. And that's not fair to the people in the community who are, um, they are entitled to have their cases heard in an efficient and expeditious manner. So this, this jurisdiction needed two judges at least. It could probably use three by mm. this point. Now, you made good on your campaign promise. Um, one of them. One of them. Well, actually, I think all of them, but that was one of the one of the reasons that I ran. As a juvenile public defender, I started out just defending kids who were um, accused of crime, but pretty quickly it was clear that there was a need for an attorney for the children who had been abused and neglected. And at the time, there were no cell phones, so I had an answering service that I paid for personally so that if kids needed me, they could get in touch with me. And I had so many kids who would call after hours that I realized that one person cannot meet the needs of all the children, all the kids under 18 in this community. And at least for those children who had suffered abuse and neglect, they needed somebody that they could count on. And CASA seemed to be the um, fill that need. So I was committed to, um, to, to creating this program. We had tried, there was a group of community activists who had tried to put together a CASA program prior to the 90s, in the late 70s and early 80s, and it, it just didn't um, take hold, I'll put it that way. There mm. was some significant judicial opposition to it, and CASA doesn't exist if the court's not willing to appoint volunteers. So it fell apart, and I decided that that was something that I, if I had to become the judge to do it, we were going to have a CASA program. And, 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 and how did that you maybe help us understand? I'm maybe reading between the lines on, on where some of the opposition came from, but, but how does CASA help the, the justice system? How does it create uh, a, a more equitable system both for, for potentially those harmed and, and those that may have been accused? Well, CASA volunteers get to know the child. They get to know the facts of the case. They talk to teachers. They talk to collaterals they talk to not only biological families but foster families and 
um, any anyone who has information about the child and can contribute to to creating um, a situation that that would benefit the child. Lawyers are required by Supreme Court rule to um, advocate for the child's stated interest. CASA volunteers make recommendations to the judge in the child's best interest. Mm. And those are significantly different as anybody who's ever had a teenager in their home would know. Um, but I often give an example from um, my perspective. I had, um, when I was representing children and required to to advocate for their stated interest, I had a, a, little, a little 11-year-old boy who was um, lived by himself, just him and his mother. His mother had significant mental health illnesses and she, he wanted to go home. He was in a great foster home, but he nevertheless wanted to go home. And I tried to talk him out of it, mm. but when I couldn't, I was obligated professionally to advocate his stated interest. And so the judge said, well, mom wants him home. He wants to go home. State doesn't have any objection. He goes home. Three weeks later, he was in the hospital. Um, I could not talk him into stating that he wanted me to advocate for his best interest. And if you fast forward several years, I had a, an attorney who came to me to find out what what to do if what the his client, his child client wanted him to advocate for was not what he felt was in her best interest. In that particular case, it was a 9-year-old who had been raped by her stepfather. Okay. Stepfather had gone to prison for life and she wanted to go home. And that sounds fine. The CASA volunteer pointed out that home for this little girl was stepdad's mom, who was convinced that if the little girl just came into her home, she could talk the little girl into recanting, and then her son could be released from prison. I can't imagine being nine and living under that kind of right. pressure. The only information I got on that regard came from CASA. So CASA saved that child's life. That's un unreal. So I hope that gives you some sense of how important the information that the CASA volunteer provides to the trial judge is. I've often said that judicial decisions can only be as good as the information they receive, and CASA gives the judge well-grounded, well-researched facts upon which better decisions can be made. Now, why did you decide to take this on full-time <laughs> and expand it across the state? Well, because I believe so strongly that CASA is a critical um, part of the of the in need of care docket. In the in the children's code it's called it's Title Six, it's children in need of care. Most every place else in the country it's called dependency court. So we just call things differently here. <laughs> As um, we're known to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I I knew how important the information that I got from CASA was to make good decisions for kids, and I knew that there were a lot of judges who didn't have that benefit. There are some places in, um, at the time, there were some places in the state that where children didn't even have lawyers. So the child's perspective, the child's voice, the child's best interest was not considered in the court process. And if it's about the child, then, I mean, it's even state of Louisiana in the interest of child, then they ought to have a seat at the table. So it when I started, there were CASA programs in all but nine jurisdictions, and now there are CASA programs in all but one, and it's the one across the river, West Baton Rouge, Iberville, and Point Capi, and I'm working on that one. Some, something tells me you're going to make that happen. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> Thinking about just the, the juvenile justice system um, as a whole, how have challenges changed, or have they not, over your, your two decades? What, what are some of the complexities we're dealing with now 
um, both informed by your experience on the bench and obviously with, with CASA? Well, clearly we have a delinquency problem. We've got a um, – and it's it has been – it ebbs and flows. I'll put it that way. I remember that when I ran in 1990, I was appalled that there had been 3,000 juvenile arrests. When I retired in the uh, at the end of 2014, I want to say there were 3,300 juvenile arrests. So 300 over the course of 24 years doesn't sound like a huge influx, particularly when you consider the demographic changes, because I was on the bench when Katrina blew a lot of people that were mm. disengaged from Baton Rouge into town. And now the the juvenile crime rate has has grown even further. Um, so I think that part of that is attributable to children being disconnected. Um, I think we need to get back to basics in education. I think schools need to be supportive of families and children, but their mission should be to help children succeed academically. And the extras should be the extras. And I'm not saying that schools shouldn't be the hub of a community because I really believe they should be and can be. But I think sometimes we sacrifice children's education for meeting all of their other needs. And we need to be able to provide a panoply of services and let the schools be schools. I also think that we have a great deal of um, trauma in in this community, Um, not only in terms of um, experiences that the child might have had, but the community experiences adversity. We've had floods, we've had hurricanes, we've had power outages. There are a lot of things that and impact. Now a global pandemic. <laughs> right. I, I try to forget that. Um, the, there are um, there are lots of things that lots of adversities that cause trauma to individuals as well as groups of people, and children need extra help overcoming trauma. There's a, um, a program that actually started in Massachusetts called the the Trauma Policy Learning Institute. And they developed an approach to trauma in schools. And although they expected to see less behavior issues and less um, absenteeism, they were shocked when they saw much better academic performance. And it makes sense to me because if um, if a child can't learn because of their emotional and behavioral reactions to the life they're living, um, then then their academic success is going to be hampered by totally. that. Um, so if, if we can develop trauma-sensitive schools that that accommodate the, the reality of the trauma that children bring to school with them, um, and, and it impacts children, even those that don't live with trauma. My children sat in the classroom next to kids who as soon as the teacher, you know, often teachers will clap their hands real loud to um, to get the students' attention. Well, if you live in a community where you're hearing gunfires, gunshots all night, that might sound to you, if you're five years old, like a gunshot. You might dive under your desk. Well, that's going to affect every child in that classroom. So I think that, that having a school look carefully at, at the processes they use to try to help kids and and tweak them to to accommodate the trauma that children bring to school with them we would see much better success in school and I personally believe that if a child can succeed in school they can succeed anywhere I think a lot of times that when we have behavior issues in class it's because the child can't succeed and I the example I often give is I can't play tennis you put me on a tennis court and you're going to see me cut up so that nobody has to know I can't play tennis imagine if I couldn't read and I was called on in a class. 
Well, my behavior is going to deflect the the attention from my lack of ability to read. And so I think we have to be more sensitive about about how we are educating kids. And I personally think suspensions have been overused to the point that it's not a deterrent. When I was in school, it was a huge thing if somebody got suspended. Everybody wanted to avoid that. Now, we hand out suspensions like candy, and it doesn't mean anything to the kids. It's just three days off, you know, and it's, if we want those um, responses to negative school behavior to have the desired effect of changing the behavior, we can't overuse them, and suspensions and expulsions have been overused. And and, and so, you know, in in the case of childhood trauma, the cost of volunteers. Talk about how you you uh, train those volunteers and help them understand to, to look for those signs and, and identify what's going on in the child's life. Well, CASA volunteers go through a 30-hour pre-service training before they're ever sworn in by the court or assigned to a child. And that training includes not only how the system works, how the child welfare system works and how the court system works, but it's also child development and and children's issues. So a lot of trauma training goes into that those first 30 hours. But more so than that, the national standards require 12 hours of in-service training annually. And that is a major role for the state association. We we conduct trainings that enhance advocacy by volunteers because our volunteers are not necessarily um, trained in children's issues. They could be anybody. Yeah, what are, what are, you, what are you looking for in, in, in the typical volunteer? Uh, a willingness to learn and a concern about children. I, it's This could be anyone. Unless you have a criminal record of pedophilia, pretty much. <laughs> what typically, when you when you meet folks that, that are interested and curious, what, what, what are some of the reservations and how do you overcome some of those? I think some people are concerned that they would get too involved with the child. This is not foster care. The the CASA volunteers don't provide a home for the child. Um, Some people are concerned that it's going to break their heart. And I can't say that it doesn't because it is um, heartbreaking to see some of the conditions that children have lived in. And um, it's it's troubling to, to know what options might be available that you would that you would not want your own children in. And I've often, I believe that if we accept for children in foster care what we wouldn't tolerate for our own, there's something wrong with us. Sometimes those things cannot be changed. And, or their their change is so incremental and so slow that it can be frustrating. And I think sometimes people are concerned that that it's going to break their heart so they don't feel like they're ready for it. Um, the other is a time commitment, and I, I fully understand that if you have, if you're a young professional, you've got a job, you've got children of your own in your home, it's hard to um, take time away from your own family to help another child. But, and it's not easy work either. I mean, advocacy for a, a child with a multitude of issues that they're dealing with can be very, very, um, it's hard work, but it's also very rewarding. And typically, when you when you find volunteers, what what's been their their length of stay with you all? Some stay four years. Mm. Um, there are the I've met a volunteer in um, at the conference who has been a CASA volunteer for fourteen years and has served forty one children. Um, some people um, serve one child and then they move on. Um, it really is very personal how, how you 
what you feel like you can give to the system and to the child? Well, you've grown the organization, um, you know, significantly, uh, and obviously this year you're being recognized with the John W. Barton uh, Nonprofit Award in Excellence um, because of your leadership and success. What what does that mean to you? What does that What does that say about the 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 last several years uh, in in building Casa across the state? Well, I do have to say that I don't feel worthy. Um, I don't have a background in nonprofit management or even in business management. I, my background is in law. Um, so I've learned something every day. I do not, I cannot think of a day that I haven't learned something. Um, I think that what it says is that the CASA movement is, um, is that there's more awareness of the need and more willingness from all across the, the state and from every walk of life to take ownership for the future of the children of our state. And I, that to me is a, is a very inspiring a pr- um, response to a problem that is so significant. It's been with us for decades. This is not, child abuse and neglect is not new. Um, and it's not going to change unless the community takes ownership for the children and ensures that they have the future that they need to have. And I will say this, Louisiana, the Louisiana CASA team is amazing. It's small, but it's it is a dynamic team. It's Morgan Washington, Amanda Moody, and Wanda Joseph. Their um, knowledge and creativity, their commitment, their passion for the mission all makes the, the job um, inspiring and fulfilling, but it's also a lot of fun. So aside from establishing a, a local casa across the river in, in West Baton Rouge, what what's next? Well, I, ha- I do actually have a bucket list. Um, of course you do. One, one of the things that has always troubled me in the course of my entire career working with children who are in, in challenging situations is that we have such an issue of domestic violence, and particularly in Baton Rouge, and children are impacted by the domestic violence in the homes in which they are living. And I don't think we do enough to intervene and support those children and to give them coping skills, to give, to teach them resiliency. We wait for them to mess up, and the research shows they do mess up, and then we blame them. Additionally, the research also shows that a child living in a home with domestic violence is 1,500 times more likely to be abused himself. Wow. So if we know, if we knew that a fire was burning in the corner and didn't put it out, it would be bad on us. And we know that these children are living with fire. And I I believe that there are um, programs and intervention services. I'm not talking about taking these children away from their moms. I'm talking about helping the child cope with the circumstances of their life and rise above them. And I also believe that if we were to do that, at some point we would begin to diminish the amount of domestic violence incidents we have. And at this point, I can say it's just grown every year. So... We're not doing a good job addressing domestic violence. Well, I'm I'm um, I'm honored and 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 confident that with your leadership, we'll shed a, a better light on it and and begin to take some meaningful steps at, at attacking that as well. Well, I, and I'm I don't want to take away from the services that that are available for victims. The the victims need help and need the support that's available to them and and could use more. But I don't want us to neglect the fact that there are children that are impacted as well. That's right. 
Kathleen, for folks who are uh, interested in learning more, how can they get in touch with you at CASA? Um, you can go on our website, louisianacasa.org. Um, for those folks who are not in Baton Rouge, you can find a program, a local program near you. There, every program is highlighted on our website. Or you can call us at uh, 225-930-0305. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen, for, for sharing your story, uh, the story of impact and, and the future of Louisiana CASA and the work of advocates to improve the lives of, of children and families. Uh, again, if you want to learn more about Louisiana CASA, please visit louisianacasa.org. As always, thank you for listening in. I'm your host, Chris Meyer, and our mission is to elevate the stories, people, and ideas making Baton Rouge and Louisiana a better place. Thanks, Kathleen. To learn more about the Baton Rouge Area Foundation, please visit our website at braf.org and become a member today.